This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu. Yes. Everyone up there calls themselves an evangelical now. Everyone? Yeah, almost, I mean, all the students, everyone, and in talking to them, none of them affirm it. Matt was laughing because I told him the whole story, but it, anyhow. It's, well, you know, there, there are people on the faculty at Princeton Seminary. I have a, 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 an acquaintance on the faculty there. Bruce. Uh, uh, no, no, Bruce uh, McCowan uh, McCormick. Yeah, he is a self-described evangelical. What we don't appreciate in our circles is that evangelicalism is broader than we appreciate. That is to say that there are ev- people who describe themselves as evangelicals who, for example, don't hold to inerrancy. And Bruce... McCormick is a guy with whom I've conversed on this particular question. And Bruce says, I'm an evangelical. I believe in the authority of Scripture, but I would not take that to the point of arguing in favor of inerrancy. But he still is an evangelical in the sense that he holds to the authority of Scripture. You understand the distinction I'm making there? It's one that a lot of people, we find difficult to understand that distinction. But it is nevertheless a distinction that exists. So, I, I mean, I'd be... I'm just saying the reason that you're laughing. It's because I mean there are people who, who really did not know. I had lunch with a PhD candidate, and he sat down and said, "I'm an evangelical," and then he proceeded to try and talk me out of the authority of Scripture. Yeah. And McCormick said he he told me he was part. Yeah. Well, see, see, I just don't you remember, I think probably in the earlier class, I forget which one it was in systematics or history one, where I talked about the difference between British evangelicals and American evangelicals. Well, that was an eye-opening experience for me because I, I you know, I sort of looked at the world in a, in a really conservative sort of way. And what I discovered is that there are people who, who uh, don't share my convictions particularly about inerrancy, but who on the, at the same time uh, share my convictions about the basic historic doctrines of Christianity, uh, who, who affirm the deity of Christ, who affirm uh, you know, uh, the atonement and, and, and on all of that, affirm historical bodily resurrection, all of that, and who preach... Uh, in a way, they believe the Bible is authoritative. And yet, when, it, when you're to nail them down, 
they're hesitant to go as far as to say there are no errors at all in the Bible. Okay, Most British evangelicals wouldn't... For them, the word inerrancy means fundamentalist. It means people who can't think clearly. That's what it means over there, by and large. And Bart historically represents to the European mindset as a return to, to a, a more, much more conservative view of the scriptures. So he is viewed as a sort of evangelical. In fact, some people call him an, a, a fundamentalist. So, I mean, you have to, you realize that the term has probably expanded a little bit. There's, there's, there's a, an elasticity to the term. Uh, people even now talk about a left-wing evangelical. Have you, have you heard that at all? And, and a, a moderate evangelical and a right-wing evangelical, perhaps. I, I would guess we're probably right there in the middle, maybe a little bit to the right. Uh, but uh, places like Fuller Seminary, and you, it would be considered left-wing, generally speaking. And probably most Christian colleges tend in that direction. Um, and at Princeton, it's probably progress that now there are people there who call themselves left-wing evangelicals. Yeah, I understand how that can be a little disorienting to have someone label themselves this way and then proceed uh, to take a viewpoint that you consider uh, essential to evangelicalism. But but just just bear in mind that there is a distinction, whether we like it or not, between uh, someone who holds biblical inerrancy and someone who holds can at the same time hold to the idea of biblical authority. Now that that seems, I mean, the example of this is just it blew, used to blow me away. I had a good friend in Oxford, and uh, he and I used to talk about inerrancy all the time. And he said, you know, how how can you believe that? It just, you know, it, you're just not a real clear thinker. And then he'd get up and preach. One of the best preachers I ever heard. I mean, he preached that Bible as if it were true. And he believed it was true. And he believed that it had authority for our lives. But he was able, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to determine those parts that had error and those that didn't. What can I say? It is, uh, it, it is a little disillusioning sometimes. But don't be discouraged. Engage those folk. Challenge them. Okay, you got me off. Let me, let me go on here for just another couple of minutes. Talking now about evangelical Baptists who believe in the authority of Scripture. Uh, inerrancy wasn't specifically an issue at this time. They didn't, they didn't use that term. Uh, although I would argue that people like Calvin and Luther implicitly held to it. And sometimes explicitly stated it. Uh, these mainstream Anabaptists believed that Luther and Calvin and the others had failed to do justice to the Bible. That they had failed to live up to their own standards at certain points. Or that the mainstream Protestants had failed or had not gone far enough. 
And one of the areas where the radicals and the Anabaptists criticized the reformers is in the area of morality. They felt that people like Luther and his followers and Calvin and his followers didn't have a high enough moral standard. Uh, and when you find someone like Luther uh, encouraging the bigamy of Philip of Hesse, that gets around. And so the Anabaptists saying, Luther, you read the same, you, you, you don't treat the Bible quite as seriously as I do. The Bible would teach me very clearly that bigamy is, is immoral. It's wrong. And here you are, Luther, telling Philip he can do it. You Protestants are not as moral as you should be. Can you understand how people might come away looking at Luther and others and saying you're not very moral? You're not that different from the Catholics. Well, that's what that's the those are the kinds of sentiments and feelings that the radicals had about the reformers. Yeah. How, how far did they take that? I mean, were they? They tend they tend to be very ascetic in their uh, their practices. Yes, I mean I don't know that. I mean alcohol was was not such it was not so taboo in that that period. So to drink alcohol, and back then was was equivalent to drinking water. So that issue itself probably wouldn't wouldn't have arisen so much. And incidentally, it's a mistake to equate American Baptists with Anabaptists in the 16th century. It's a very different group. All American Baptists, whether Southern Baptists or whatever other kind of Baptists are in America, by and large, they trace their heritage not to 16th century Anabaptists, but to the English Puritans. That's where they come from. So it's a very different heritage. Some of the key things that these mainstream Anabaptists believed. The first thing, of course, is that their final authority is, is the Bible. But they also tended to be what is known as primitivists. That is to say that they sought to return to the primitive model, the early model of the early church in terms of practice. What I say, what I mean by primitivist is they wanted to go back and find the model of the early church with all of its simplicity, its lack of liturgy, and bring all that back and let that be the model for their church. They tended to be very ahistorical. That is to say, uh, they didn't think much about historical development or tradition. They simply wanted to have a simple church where Christians were Christians and Christians live like Christians ought to live. They didn't think too deeply about theology by and large. This is a movement that by and large is also anti-intellectual. Anti-theological is probably a better way to put that. So they're primitivists, ahistorical. They tended to be pacifistic, although not exclusively. 
but the mainstream Anabaptists believed in the ethic of the Sermon on the Mount. That one ought not to engage in violence. They also believed in separation from the world. And for them, that included any contact with civil government. But it also included the world in general. We are a separate group, they said. And we are to have nothing to do with those who are not Christians like we are. So they were separatists. Very strongly so. And of course they believed in uh, adult believers' baptism. If you're looking for uh, examples of this group, I'll give you a few names. Uh, these group, at least the early group of these Baptists, called themselves the Swiss Brethren. That was their self. That was their label for themselves, the Brethren. <coughs> they were Swiss. They called themselves Swiss Brethren because the first one, first ones originated among the Swiss. But famous persons of this mainstream Anabaptism were people like Conrad Grebel. G-R-E-B-E-L Michael Sattler martyred for his faith and Menno Simons and of course modern day Mennonites uh, originate from Menno Simons back in the 16th century Now, these mainstream uh, Anabaptists, there were exceptions. Even when you believe and when you state that the Bible is your final authority, you still have difficulties of one sort or another. Because not everybody interprets the Bible in the same way. Even when it is, even when two groups claim that the Bible is their final authority, you still get different interpretations. And that happened among the Anabaptists. Uh, some of them read the Bible, read the Old Testament, and they saw that sometimes men had two wives. And so there are some groups, smaller groups, who practice polygamy. The Bible was their final authority. They thought they found it in the Old Testament, and so they practiced it. One of the things that also tends to characterize many of these mainstream Anabaptists is an, a, an apocalyptic mentality, an expectation that the end of the world is imminent. Now, this is not exclusively an idea that is, is exclusively characteristic of Anabaptists because Luther himself believed that the world was nearing the end. But the Anabaptists tended to be characterized by this as well. Okay, let's take a short break and we'll come back and look at the spiritualists. As we got to the, the so-called the second major grouping after the Anabaptists, as I call them, are the spiritualists. These are still generally under the broad category of, of radicals, some, if they want to use the term Anabaptist in a broad sense. We can talk about this group. Now, their primary uh, source of authority is the Spirit. 
That's why they're called the spiritualists. Now, that's not to say they reject the Bible or anything like that. But as Williams categorizes them, he looks at them and he says that, that they tended to put a great emphasis upon the Holy Spirit. Uh, many of them claim to have received special revelation from God in visions. Some of these spiritualists even claimed to have had revelations from God or had visions which led them to go out and commit violence. I will give you an example of that in more detail later. Just to give you a few examples of spiritualists, there was these Zwickau prophets. This was a group of, of men who claimed to have the authority of the Holy Spirit. Luther was in the Wartburg, uh, translating the Bible into, into uh, the New Testament into German. That's when he was kidnapped and, and held away for about 18 months. And these three guys waltzed into town and said, well, we have the Spirit of God upon us, and we're going to tell you now how this Reformation ought to be, ought to be, ought to be going. Luther heard, about, Luther heard about it and didn't like it at all. And one of the Zwickau prophets was a man named Thomas Munzer. M-U-N-T-Z-E-R. The man who led the Peasants' Revolt a few years later. A man who claimed the authority of the Holy Spirit led him to take up weapons against the authorities that be and to encourage others to engage in violence. Thomas Munzer. Another famous spiritualist would be a guy like Hans Denk, D-E-N-C-K. Uh, the spiritualists, because they were uh, had the authority of the Holy Spirit or received a vision or, or whatever, ended up making decisions about theology, which didn't necessarily comport with Orthodox historic Christianity. For example, Hans Denk rejected the atonement of Christ. He rejected justification by faith. And just to make it interesting, he rejected predestination. What did he affirm? He affirmed the mystical illumination of the Holy Spirit. And this mystical illumination led him to reject some of the distinctive doctrines of Protestantism as well as historic Christianity. Another interesting person is Kaspar Schwenkfeld. And his followers were called Schwenkfelders. No. Yes. And they still exist. Anyway, uh, one of the things that he believed, or two things that, that Schwenkfeld believed, is that moral perfection is attainable in this life. And probably the most distinctive feature of the Schwenkfelders is the belief that Christ, that Jesus was merely a man who was deified by God. Born a man, but deified, raised to the status of of divinity by God. So he ultimately rejects during his life. During his life. Yes. 
Another interesting person is uh, Sebastian Frank, or Franca. He uh, tended toward pacifism, believed in universalism. So that gives you an idea of some of the kinds of beliefs. These people who, who were led by the Holy Spirit to these, what we would consider rather odd theological conclusions. Universalism, uh, Christ is not the eternal Son of God, but a man deified. We're talking mid-16th century. Same time, same time frame as the Protestant Reformation. When Luther opened the floodgates... All kinds of people ran through it. Uh, some of whom end up like these guys with some rather odd views. Uh, Unitarianism probably does have its roots in this period. I mean, you could historically, you could argue that universalism goes back to the early church because there were some groups called monarchians who were essentially universalists. But yes, more historically, you find these, this, these kinds of people start to emerge in this period. The Enlightenment gives them a new infusion, and then our modern group comes out of that. You had mentioned uh, earlier that there was a real supernatural element going on, and not supernatural, real one. Uh, what number 13, black cats, Superstition. Superstition. Yeah, do you think this kind of came out of the religious side? Um, I'm sure that some of those kinds of things are should be factored in. One of the things that's very interesting about this group, by and large, now some of them were, were, were trained, but others were not. Some of the leaders that come out of this group are not trained at all. They just have these visions, and that's what gives them their authority. Uh, so it's it's generally a movement that is that is not theologically oriented, and not historically oriented. That is to say, they're not aware of or not studied in historic orthodoxy. They don't know what that is, and they don't care because the Holy Spirit has descended upon them and told them what the truth is. The rationalists, what is their final source of authority? Human reason. Some might argue that these are the folks who are the, the precursors of the Enlightenment, which occurred in the 18th century. Now, this group is a particularly diverse subgrouping. Very, very diverse. In fact, some of the things that these folks believe are a great distance from what the more evangelical Anabaptists, the mainstream Anabaptists believe. Uh, the mainstream Anabaptists were real Christians, brothers in the Lord. One has real doubts about some of these rationalists. Uh, in fact, uh, one is hard-pressed uh, to, to, uh, to make that statement about them. Generally, the rationalists are characterized by a belief in toleration that all sides should be tolerated. And they're also characterized by their rejection of basic Christian doctrines. The rationalists rejected things like the Trinity. They rejected the deity of Christ. Christ. 
and original sin. Why did they reject those kinds of doctrines? Well, it didn't make sense to them. How can Jesus be both fully God and fully man? That's not rational. So they rejected that doctrine. How can God be one and yet three? That doesn't make rational sense. So they rejected it. How could God hold me accountable for what Adam did? That doesn't make sense to me, they said. And so they rejected it. So you see, this, there's a sense in which there is a real elevation of man and man's reason. They are setting themselves in judgment over the Scriptures. Very characteristic of this group. Uh, and again, a great deal in common with Unitarians today. The anti-Trinitarian viewpoint denying the deity of Christ puts them very much in the same camp of modern Unitarianism. Some of the uh, exponents are people like Michael Servetus. We mentioned him earlier. He's the guy that people accuse Calvin of having burned. Uh, he was an anti-Trinitarian. Uh, these are the founders of Socinianism. Lilio and Fausto, Socini. Uh, an uncle and nephew. This is the uncle, this is the nephew. And they perpetuated anti-Trinitarian kind of thought. Uh, and Sebastian Castillo is also a very famous critic of Calvin. If you know much about Calvin, you know that Castillo was a friend of his originally who worked in Geneva, but became dissatisfied with Calvin and was actually fired, I believe. And he spent the latter part of his life writing books against Calvin and the Reformed faith. He rejected predestination. He rejected the, the, the Old Testament book, the Song of Songs, as pornography. And uh, Calvin wasn't happy that, that uh, Castillo decided to take upon himself to rearrange the canon. Well, Anabaptism, or the radical movement, began on January 21st, 1525, 4.30 p.m. January 21st, 1525, 4.30 p.m. Are you with me? Can I be, can I be more precise? <laughs> I don't know about the 4.30 p.m. bit, but January 21st, 1525 is the day that Anabaptism was born because that was the day that Conrad Grable baptized or rebaptized George Blaurock in the home of Felix Mons. Grable baptized Blaurock in the home of Mons. Got it? January first, 21st, 1525. This movement began in Zurich. Uh, what happened is these folks were originally followers of Ulrich Zwingli. Originally followers of Ulrich Zwingli. And Zwingli's hallmark was go back to the Scriptures 
and they did. And when they read the Scriptures, they did not find any warrant for infant baptism. Uh, I think it was probably sprinkling. Really? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I could be wrong about that. I don't know for sure, but I think it was sprinkling. Immerse- the, the mold was not so much the issue. Well, somebody did. I think. And one, here's one little. I'll end on this note for now. Is that some people are very critical of Ulrich Zwingli at this point because there seems to have been a short period of time in which Zwingli himself was not sure about infant baptism. And he must, and apparently he had verbalized these hesitations, these doubts. His followers heard this and they ran with it. So there does appear to be a short period of time when Zwingli wrestled over this question himself but very quickly concluded that, that he believed in infant baptism. What's kind of interesting is, is that here's a man who, who wrestled with this question himself, but against those who differed with him, he could be very harsh. In fact, we'll see how they were actually kicked out of Zurich and, uh, and forced to leave because of this, this uh, difference. Uh, Grable, as I mentioned before, following the advice of, of uh, Ulrich Zwingli to go to the Scriptures to see if it's true. Now, obviously, what Zwingli was doing is he was challenging the teachings of Roman Catholicism. He says, they say this, go to the Scriptures and see if it ain't so. Thinking, of course, they will come to the conclusion that Rome is wrong. But in addition, they came to the conclusion that Zwingli was wrong. And as I said, Zwingli did entertain for some time, uh, some brief time, uh, the possibility that infant baptism was unbiblical and may have given some subtle encouragement to think in that direction by some of his friends like Conrad Grable. Take just a moment to say something about the Lutheran view of baptism and the Zwinglian view of baptism because this will really help answer that first question I raised about why the Protestants hated the Anabaptists so much. First, the Lutheran view. Just to set some context here. Uh, Lutherans believe in infant baptism uh, and they believe that the Christian community believed for the infant. There is a sense of uh, regeneration even uh, in in baptism. There's a real strong relationship there. Zwingli takes a much more what we would call a Reformed view He argued that New Testament baptism is a successor to Old Testament circumcision, looking at a passage like Colossians 2, 11 and 12. Zwingli also talked about the covenant promises that God made a promise to Abraham that I will bless you and your seed 
And that that same sort of covenant language is repeated in Acts chapter 2 by Peter. So there's this continuity between the Abrahamic promises and those applied in the New Testament. But here's the kicker. For Zwingli, there was a political dimension to baptism in Zurich. A political dimension. Baptism in Zwingli, Zurich was not only a religious rite of entrance into the church. It was that. But it was also a civic rite of entrance into citizenship of Zurich. Yes. Baptism was not only a religious rite of entrance into the church. Baptism was also a civil rite. R-I-T-E. An entrance into citizenship in Zurich. What that meant when Grable baptized Blaurock in a way that rejected baptism, infant baptism, it was in fact not only, from, as far as Vingley and the, and the Zurichers were concerned, it was not only a matter of doctrinal error, but it was an act of sedition. It was treason. It was rejecting the idea of citizenship. It was rejecting the idea of loyalty to Zurich and to the canton of Zurich. And remember how the Swiss are such strongly patriotic types? Really strong patriots there. And to reject infant baptism which was a political as well as a religious rite, smacked of treason to Zwingli and his followers. To reject the civic element of baptism, infant baptism, was treason. It was a rejection of citizenship. It was a rejection of loyalty to the state. It was a declaration of separation between church and state, which meant for the Zwinglians treason. Now, what is the penalty for treason? Death. Do you see why the people in Zurich felt so strongly? This wasn't just an exegetical matter for them, a matter of interpreting this verse versus that verse. It was a political question. And to reject infant baptism, which tied one into the state, which stressed one's loyalty, one family loyalty to the state, was to was tantamount to treason. Uh, Zwingli and followers took what they must have thought was very prudent and cautious uh, response to this act. They said, those of you who refuse to have your children baptized, who affirm this believer's baptism and reject the civic right, we give you eight days to reconsider your view. And if you fail 
to come to agree with us, then we will consider you in effect a traitor. And in this case, acting moderately, we will expel you from our canton. We will not harbor traitors is another way of saying we reject your view of believer's baptism. In the mind of the Zwinglians, whether it's right or wrong, is that this was political treason. And this gets at the real heart of why there was so much animosity between the Protestants and the Anabaptists. As far as I know, later on, there, there was some execution. I want to mention that in just a moment. Uh, there were executions. In fact, what's, what I think is, is um, kind of cruel, actually, that one of the forms of execution was drowning. And you see the mockery there? You say, you want to be baptized? Okay. <laughs> we'll give you a final baptism. Uh, I mean, that's... We can laugh, you know, 500 years later, but you know that wasn't that wasn't that wasn't funny uh, back then. Serious matter, but yes, uh, initially, uh, Zwingli said expulsion is the penalty for this. But they did warn these people that this would be a capital offense. So don't come within our territory again. And if you're in our territory, you better get out before you advocate it. Uh, the fact of the matter is there were some who were executed in Zurich. <coughs> Opposition to Anabaptism was widespread. Even the Catholic Emperor, Charles V, made it a capital offense, as did most Protestants, to, be, to re-baptize an adult. The one thing on which Catholics and Protestants agreed is that Anabaptists ought to suffer death. Scholars estimate that somewhere between 1,000 and 5,000 Anabaptists were executed between 1525 and 1618 in that century since the beginning of Anabaptism. This may be a sad but I've always been curious why the intensity of issues like that well the big watershed intellectual event that changed everything is called the Enlightenment. And in, in, in the shadow of the Enlightenment, uh, all kinds of other uh, thinking entered into the, to the equation. Uh, that's certainly one answer to that question. We probably could spend a lot of time on that, but I, I need to move on. This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures 
and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.